Matthew 6, 19 through 24. When you get it, say, got it. Pretty quick in the front row there. Bookmark. (laughs) All right, let me uh, read this. I'm reading out of the New American Standard. It says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. And then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then the light that is in you is darkness. How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning anticipating that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, we just ask God that you would anoint our time, that you would use me as your mouthpiece to communicate what you would have for us today. God, we want to... We want to... Read your word as the God-breathed and God-inspired word. That it's powerful, it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And God, we want to hear from you, insight into our lives. Would you reveal these truths and make it applicable to our lives here? God, we don't want to just come away with head knowledge or a greater understanding of what these verses mean. But we also want to know what they mean for us. God, we want our hearts to be changed. We want our hearts to be yours completely. And even before we start right now, we just declare that Christ, that you are the true treasure, that there's nothing that compares to you. That there's nothing on this earth that has ever come, will ever be, that is better than you. You are far greater. You are far more valuable than anything this world has to offer and any one that we might do it with. We just declare that you are King Jesus, that you are Lord, that you are Master, and we do pray, God, that your will would be done today. You are the good shepherd. You know exactly where each of us are at, our strengths, our struggles, what we need this morning. We just ask that you would show up and you would speak truth into our lives this morning, God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, obviously, these verses are um, quite comical living in the city that we do. Um, You know, I grew up here. Uh, I grew up in Santa Barbara. I went to school in Goleta. Now live in Carp. Got married in Montecito. This has been my uh, stomping grounds. You know, this is, I, I've been, have the, the, the blessing to grow up here. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable place in which we live and do life. And if you're not from here, but now you live here, that's why. Because it's so wonderful. And it's amazing. You live somewhere else, and you're here. You're here. And you're doing anything you can to stay here. Uh, it's pretty hard. But, um, and if you are from here... Unless you've 
moved away for school or traveled quite a bit, you really take this for granted, what we have here on this coastline. Um, it's, it's apparent, it's not, it's the, the elephant in the room, so to speak. The city oozes wealth, status, position, etc. You literally cannot go outside of this building. Anywhere you go outside of this building, unless you literally close your eyes and plug your ears, you cannot go outside this building without being tempted by something bigger or better than what you have. It oozes that. Every street you go down and every car you pass by and every restaurant, you're like, I wish I hated that restaurant. I want that car. That house is nice. I just painted my house, but that's nicer paint. (laughs) Even as successful as you can be here, unless you're Oprah, (laughs) someone has you beat. (laughs) And maybe even her, who knows? Behind the walls of Montecito, who can know? What's back there? God, God knows. But it doesn't matter how much money you make. Someone has you beat. There's something bigger. There's something better. Wealth is around us. It oozes out the city of Santa Barbara's pores, so to speak. It just is. This is where wealthy people congregate. Um, If you've lived here, if you know about our city, uh, we've got yacht clubs. Um, We've One of the biggest yachts in the world just came by here, uh, just was out in the harbor a couple months ago. Uh, That yacht alone costs $20 million just to run a year. Like, you're not really even going anywhere. I don't even think it costs gas. That's not even gas. It's just workers. The suite in that yacht, I just read about it, is encapsulated in bulletproof material. It's ridiculous. (laughs) It's ridiculous. I get it, I get it, but I don't, I don't at the same time. Cruise ships stop here, right? Every cruise ships, people come visit. Uh, the Navy stops here because it's amazing, right? This is an amazing place. The Prince of England lands his helicopter on our polo fields. Who does that? Um, if you want to see a movie star, just look around. I don't know if you, I, I mean, it's just weird. I, I actually run into them like all the time. Let me tell you some funny stories. Um, not long ago, eating at, eating at Los Arroyos in Montecito with my wife, amazing food, we're having fun. All of a sudden, the restaurant starts clearing out. It gets a little, you know, less noisy, starts getting really quiet. We see these guys in black suits. They're moving everybody out of their tables. They don't talk to us. And John Boehner comes in with the Secret Service and just starts eating next to us. And it's only us and John Boehner, the house of rep, you know, the guy, house, speaker of the house. Third in charge. Um, right, Secret Service, meeting next to him, John Boehner. I used to work at In-N-Out Burger uh, in high school. Yep, amazing burger. Um, had the whole suit and everything. Uh, served Brad Pitt, and this is when he was with Jennifer Aniston, cheeseburgers, right, in the drive-thru. Oh, hi, Brad Pitt, how you doing? Yeah, no problem. <laughs> no problem. Uh, stood behind Meg Ryan at the airport in the security line, like your movies, you and Tom Hanks are good together, that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> Uh, I went to high school with uh, Katy Perry, right, DP, uh, same graduating class, or actually her name's Hudson, so we had the same yearbook page, pretty classic. Um, <laughs> claim to fame. Um, Jack, Johnson, Jack Johnson's wife taught me math, uh, been to more concerts, 
you know, this is when he was really getting big, been to more concerts than you can count. Um, I mean, if you want to see a movie star, look around, right? Those are just a few stories, funny stories, but I'm sure you guys have seen it too. Uh, nice houses, just go outside, look at the Riviera, drive through Hope Ranch, drive through Montecito, um, unbelievable houses. Nice cars. Uh, we actually have climate-controlled buildings you can put your car in and watch it from your, from your iPhone just to make sure it's safe in our town. This, they have this. They have this. They have buildings for your cars in our town. Car, climate-controlled. If you want to see wealth, I, I, I'm joking because it's, it's just like a joke reading this verse. It's like a joke because you're like, we live in one of the most affluent, nice, and wealthiest places in the world. The temptation to want, have, and amass earthly treasure is all around us. It's inescapable. It really is. More than other places. And so if anything, when we read this verse, we've got it harder than other people. And, And to be honest, I've never taught a more relevant and applicable topic that really relates to every single person in the room. Like right now, like when you leave, or like right now, because you're looking at the person next to you about the watch they have or something. Seriously. It's all around us all the time, and we all are tempted to want, have, and amass earthly treasure. And to be reminded where, where this is, you know, Matthew 6, it's in the middle of the Sermon of the Mount. We've been going through that as a church, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And what Jesus is doing is he's instructing the multitudes in how they ought to live, his disciples included. Uh, everything from relationships to their devotional life to the ways they pray. And everything thus far and coming in the Sermon of the Mount is extremely relevant for us here and now today, 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. And this too, Matthew 6, 19 through 24, is very, very relevant and applicable to our lives. Lately, you know, we've been studying the spiritual disciplines, like we like to call it. It's different aspects or practices of the Christian life, uh, different sorts of way we pray. We studied fasting last week. We're continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and today we're camped out where God has us in this section of Scripture that concerns treasure, what we value most, what we, what we serve with our lives. And if we were going to, if I was going to, Put it in a paragraph, the main point of the text today, it would be this, is that we were made to have a master, all of humanity. We were made to have a master and a Lord, that being God. And we were made to be worshipers, worshipers of the one true living God. But humanity, us, can replace God with other things to worship and serve instead. God is to be the ultimate thing in which we seek and base our lives upon, but other things can take that place. These things are considered counterfeit gods, or as the Bible puts it, idols. One of the major idols Jesus touches upon today is wealth. Examples, materialism, treasure. And what we treasure or what we value most determines where the affections of our heart lie. But as Jesus ends this section today, he says, but the truth is that we can only serve one master, either God or money, either God or wealth. So that's where we're here today. That's where we're at. 
living in the city with this text in front of us, and this is what God would want to show us today. What Jesus does in this section is he teaches this in three different ways. He actually breaks it down really nice. The first way is he, he questions our treasure, verses 19 through 21. Then he, then he has a question of vision. He uses this analogy of the eye in verses 22 through 23. And then he questions who we worship or who we serve in verse 24. So I'm just going to move through those and uh, allow the Lord to speak. But verses 19 through 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. What Jesus does here is he commands us to not do something and he commands us to do something else. Right? It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a you should or it'll be better for you. He says don't. You should not Store up treasures on earth, but you should store up treasures in heaven instead. This is what Jesus means by treasure here. By treasure, Jesus means that the things we prized most dearly. And there's, there's only two places for our treasure to be. It's either in heaven or it's on earth. Those are the only two places our treasure can be. And every earth-bound treasure is liable to fail. Jesus gives some examples. It's either by deterioration, right? Moth or rust destroy it. Or through unforeseen circumstances like thieves break in and steal the treasure that you've amassed. But only heaven is immune from the ravages of sin and time. Therefore, what Jesus is saying here, bank in heaven, not on earth. Live for heaven and not for earth. It immediately would pop the question into your head, are material possessions bad? Is everything on this earth bad then? No. Possessions are, you know, morally neutral. In and of themselves, no. Maybe some. But mostly no. There's stuff. There's things. There's things that we have, things that we do life with. And no, inherently, no, they're not evil or they're not bad. They can and should be used for God's glory and for the betterment of those around you. Everything that God gives any one of us, uh, we're we're stewards of that. It's not actually ours anyway, it's God's, right? And we're we're to be good stewards of what God's given us, our time, talent, and our treasure. So it's actually not ours anyway, it's all God's, and those things are to be used for his glory and his namesake. Things are not bad, wealth is not bad in and of itself, But Jesus says, don't store up things here. Store up things in heaven. And for a lot of us, that can be really hard to grasp because you're like, heaven's there, never seen God, never seen heaven. Where's the treasure? What does it look like? Don't get it. For a lot of us, we just want Count of Monte Cristo to happen. I just want to find treasure, gold, jewel. That's treasure. I got it. Store up that treasure, not that. Got it. It's tangible. I I have a picture in my head what it is. That's earthly treasure, right? Earthly treasure is tangible. We can see it, feel it, have it, amass it, use it, all that kind of stuff. Eternal treasure or treasures in heaven is seeking things above. It's living for Christ. It's living a godly life. It's honoring Christ. It's obeying Christ. It's seeking the things above. It's loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself and not really caring about it, all the stuff around us. 
See, all the stuff that God gives us should just be used as tools for his glory. They're just instrument for his glory. It's not about the stuff. It's about God. And the only thing, the only things that we do for Christ are the only things that are gonna last. Everything else is gonna burn, the Bible tells us. Everything else will fail, will deteriorate, will be stolen and taken from us. The only thing we do for Christ will last. And that's that eternal treasure. That's that reward in heaven that over and over and over the Bible speaks of when we obey, trust, and love Christ. That's when we get rewarded. That's when we get the treasure in heaven which Jesus is speaking about. But we have to ask ourselves, okay, am I storing up treasure on heaven in an ungodly, not right way? Well, there's a couple questions you could ask to figure that out real quick. One would be, what do you count in your life as most important or really important? Is it your stuff? Or is it Christ and his kingdom and his glory and honoring him? Another question would be like, what do you dream about? Or better, what do you daydream about? What occupies your mind? Is it that bigger house or that job promotion or the more money or the new car or the new thing that I can get? Or is it Christ and who he is and his kingdom and his word and his... You get what I'm saying? It's pretty easy real quick to say, wow, my life is occupied just on getting that and this and the other and having this life that my 10-year plan is what I want. It's really easy to see where God's going with this. And in verse 21, he reveals the true source of the problem. In verse 21, it says, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. See, the root problem, the root issue is the heart, our heart, not the stuff. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, where do our affections lie? It's, it's, it's not about the stuff, the house and the car and the wealth and the position and the person and the stuff. It's about why we want that stuff. It's about if we want that stuff more than we want God, that's the real issue that Jesus is trying to communicate here. Right? It's not just about having that nice house. You can have that nice house. It's okay. Everybody right now is like, what is happening? We live in Santa Barbara. What are you talking about? How are we going to survive? Median house range is like 1.1 million. That's a million dollar house. It's okay. You can have that. That's all right. But where is your heart in that? Why do you want that? Do you want that more than you want God? That is what we're trying to get at. There is a difference, which we'll see later, between having wealth and worshiping wealth. There is a, it's different. But the point of this first section is that what you desire most is what you will treasure. If that's the Lord, then it'll be the things of the Lord. If it's not, then it'll be the things of the world, right? Treasure's only in, in two places. If you desire the Lord most, the things of the Lord will be the things that you treasure. But if not, then it will be the things of the world. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus goes into this kind of weird analogy. So, uh, confusing, we a lot of times read over it. We're not sure exactly what it means, but he says this. This is the New Living Translation, even to help us a little bit more. It says, verse 22, your eye is a lamp that provides light to your body. 
When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. When your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have, you, you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. So what this is, is this is an illustration of what Jesus has been talking about. It's in context, it's an illustration of what God's talking about here. It's not literal. It's a figure of speech. It's metaphorical. And in Scripture, the eye, the, the, specifically right here when Jesus says your eye is the lamp, uh, the eye is equivalent to the heart in Scripture. When you say set the eye on something or fix the heart on something, they're synonymous with each other in, in Scripture. And so what this text seems to be saying is, just as your eye affects your whole body, so our ambition. Where we fix our eyes and our heart affects our whole being. That, that's, what, that's what Jesus is trying to get at here. He's saying just as the eye affects our whole body, right? When we see light and picture, it, it invokes emotion. And I mean, eyes are almost, almost everything, right? Almost. But, but your eye affects your whole body. And so in the same way, our ambition, where we fix our eyes and our heart, affects our whole being. And so the question that Jesus is trying to get to is, do we have a clear or a clouded vision? Do we have an eye filled with light or with darkness? Is materialism clouding our vision and we're losing our sense of values? Right? Is our eye affecting our whole body? Is, is the false gods of materialism clouding our vision? Or is the opposite true? Or are we fixing our eyes on things above? And is that informing our worldview? Is that changing us from the inside out? Is that determining how we spend our money or not? There's also a couple different meanings. It's pretty loaded, this, this illustration. One is just, do you have a clouded vision? Are your eyes on Christ? Right? The eyes is synonymous to a heart, but also it speaks of generosity. See, in rabbinic literature, if you, have a, if you had a good eye, you were a generous person. That's what it meant back then in, in culture. If, if you were said to have a good eye, you were a generous person. If you had an evil eye, you were a stingy or greedy person. So the readers back here on the Sermon of the Mount, they got what Jesus meant. Hey, if, if your eye is good, then your body is going to be good. If your eye is not, you're not going to be good. And they said, oh, wow, he's talking about generosity. He's talking about giving. He's talking about wealth. He's talking about what we do with the wealth, how it affects our whole being. An evil eye back then was a phrase in use among ancient Jews to denote an envious, covetous man or disposition. A man who hated his neighbor's prosperity, loved his own money, and would do anything, or excuse me, would do nothing in the way of charity for God's sake. So it's pretty strong what Jesus is saying here. And he was, it was he's saying that there's two different ways you can live. Uh, live for me or live for the world. Jesus was speaking about generosity here. Also, in the King James Version of this verse, it says, I, I might not even read this right. I can't even hardly understand King James. <laughs> kind of. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. That word there is not, 
single, and the Greek means simple or simplicity. So not only is Jesus speaking of being generous, but he's saying be simple or single-minded when it comes to wealth and possessions. And so the takeaway that we can get from kind of this confusing illustration that Jesus is telling is that a good eye, to have a good eye, which you want to be in this illustration, is someone who is unclouded in heart, is simple and generous in the way they view wealth. That's what he's saying. If you have a good eye, it'll affect your whole body. If you have a bad eye, it'll affect your whole body. A good eye is a generous, simple, generous, unclouded person, unclouded by wealth, unclouded by the things of the world. But one with a bad eye is consumed with the things of the world. It's consumed with wealth. It's consumed with self-preservation and self-want. And so, how can we tell? How can we tell if our eye is cloudy, so to speak? A good test may be the extent in which we're generous, right? With the good things that God has given us stewardship of. How generous are we with the people and the community around us? How tight a grasp do we have on our money or our possessions? That would be a proper question to ask yourself, to, to realize, hey, is my, is my eye clouded in, this, in, the, in the way Jesus is talking about? Am I, am I clouded in my, my vision of Christ by the things around me? A good question would be how tight a grasp you have on your money and your possessions. This is getting really real, huh? You're like, oh, God. It's all quiet. It's quiet. I know it's getting real. Because you're just like, oh, I just bought that. What about that thing? Is that bad? I don't know. It's the point of today, though, asking these questions. And then in verse 24, this is where Jesus drives it home. This is where we're going to camp out for a while here in verse 24. It says this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is where Christ would question our worship. This is the main thrust of today's text. It goes in line with verse 21 where it, where it confronts the heart and our affections. See, when we read this verse, even Christians, even some of us Christians don't want to believe this verse. We think we can have it both and we don't like the stark outrightness of the verse. Like we can only choose God or wealth. What the heck? Not both? But many of us would attempt to do both. And this is what I mean by that. An example would be uh, either we serve God on Sundays and other things on the weekdays. That's one way. Other way would be we serve God with our lips but not with wealth in our hearts. Another way would be we serve God in appearance, right? Everyone thinks we serve God, but really, in reality, we serve materialistic possessions, wealth, and position. Or another example would be Uh, We serve God with just kind of half-heartedly, half the time, with half of our being, and worldly things, the other half. We try to do both. We try to stand on the fence. We try to be on both sides. But what God clearly says here, and make no mistake about it, that we cannot serve both. You either serve wealth or you serve God. You either serve uh, earthly treasure or things of above. 
The key concept here is that we can only serve one master, right? This idea comes up of serving one master. And what that comes down to is obedience, allegiance, and who or what our lives are dedicated or dictated by. See, service in this context has to come, comes down to control and to worship. So it's not just a simple thing. It's not just, you know, a soft maybe, I don't know, I'm kind of going to do this, I'm kind of going to do that. When it speaks of serving God or wealth, it talks about control and worship and allegiance and obedience and who our life is dictated by. I mean, it's a really, really big deal who we serve. Because going back to that original paragraph that I showed you earlier of kind of the main point. The truth is, is that we were made to worship our master. We were made to have a master. We were made to worship that master, that master being God, the one true living God, and him and him alone. We were made to be worshipers. We were created to be worshipers. But here's the deal. When we cease to worship God, we don't cease to be worshiping creatures. We're gonna worship something else. That's just our created nature. If we are not worshiping God, then we're worshiping something else. That's where it becomes really real. We are going to worship whoever or whatever we make Lord. If Jesus Christ is not Lord of our lives, we are not worshiping him. We're worshiping something else or some, someone else. See, not only that, but God is to have the supreme and ultimate place in our lives, in our hearts, and in our minds. He's supposed to be Lord. The supreme, ultimate place in our lives. He is to be Lord and Master. But the trap and the danger and the warning that Christ is giving us in verse 24 is that money specifically, along with, we're going to see, anything else, can become a counterfeit God, or what the Bible likes to call an idol. This is where Jesus confronts the ideas of idolatry, or the idea of idols. Many of us, when we think idols, we think of some you know, primitive uh, golden carved statue or some wood uh, deity to some god, and that can be. I mean, idols are still worshipped uh, around the world, still in that way, but an idol can be anything. An idol is just not a figure. It's just not a, a carved figure or a golden calf. An idol can be anything. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, said this. An idol can be anything. The human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify, make them God, deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment, and if we, if we attain them. Anything in life can serve as an idol, a God alternative, a counterfeit God. By definition, 
an idol? Is anything more important to you or to me than God? Anything that absorbs our heart and our imagination more than God. Anything we seek to give us what only God can give us. An idol is anything that becomes more fundamental than God to our happiness, meaning in life, and identity. Let's just stop there for a moment and soak that in. It's not just money in the bank, but it's power, it's position, it's, it's anything. An idol can be anything that takes an ultimate and supreme place in our lives where only God should have. See, we can deify things. We can make things the center of our lives because we do think that if I only have this, if I only have that, if I have this and that and the other, and if this comes, then I'll be. Anything can serve as an idol. And here's some practical examples. You can make family or children an idol. You can make your career or making money an idol. Achievement or critical acclaim, a saving face, your social standing can be an idol. A romantic relationship for sure can be an idol. Peer approval, competence or skill. Uh, if you're secure and comfortable in your circumstances, that can be an idol. Your beauty, your brains, a great political or social issue, your morality, your virtues, even success in Christian ministry can become an idol. See, whatever controls us is our Lord. See, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. See, church, we, we, don't, we don't control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives, that being Christ or that being something else. If you've tuned out, you need to wake up. Because this is real. This is real and it's applicable to all of us. God should be our only Lord and master. But whatever we love most and trust in, we also serve. We serve that which we love and trust most. So anything that becomes more important and non-negotiable to us then God becomes an enslaving idol. Anything. And that's heavy. I understand that. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why would we do this? God is so good, right? God is our Lord. We're created to worship him. Why would we ever turn our affections to something else? We have to be reminded we're a hurt and broken people. We live in a fallen world. We've got issues, we've got baggage, we've got junk. And there's a lot of different reasons why we can set up idols in our lives. We can do it for security or because of insecurities, right? I want security to have this or I'm insecure that I don't have that. Or it might be an identity issue, right? We place our identity in something else other than Christ. We haven't found that our identity is in Christ. It could be that we want to find acceptance 
in a person or a thing, if, if we only do this, if we only, you know, make this much money, or if we don't, if we only have this, my parents will be happy. Or my spouse will, will think more of me, or my friends groups will, will think something of me. We do things for acceptance. We also fall into the trap of just really caring too much about what people think. And we want to compete. We want to, we want to, you know, be at the same level and do the same things. And we struggle with competition. We also seek to gain approvals from, approval from others when we already have approval in Christ. We've already been accepted. We've already been approved. We've already been loved more than we ever could love, but we still seek it out. Or we may feel like we need to gain respect of others, right? Man, they would respect me or they would talk to me now or, or, or they would care about me more if I only had these things. Or... It may, just look, it may just look around us and, and you might listen to what the world would say at this age, you should have that. You should own the house by this age and you could drive that, you should be making this much money at this age and we get so influenced by what point of life that we should be in that we put our hope and our trust and, and, and we serve those things to gain them. None of us are immune to this. None of us are, uh, this is an easy thing. None of us, none of us is free of this because we live in a fallen world and until we see Jesus face to face, it's, it's gonna be in our face. So move. It's gonna be easier for you. Move out of the city. Just kidding. It might be. You know, they're all around you. Anything, anything, doesn't matter where you live. It's a little bit more potent because wealth's around us, but anywhere you cannot escape it, tempted to Give your affections to something else other than God. There's a, a kind of another test we can do if, if something in our lives is um, potentially an idol, right? If, if, if you're here kind of trying to justify your way out of an idol right now, all of us are. All of us are. No, I just love it a lot. No, I'm good. I daydream, but not that much. Or I want that, but that's not a bad, I mean, again, those might not be, but I'm saying all of us in one way or another are justifying something in our lives. Or it could be apparent that we just, yeah, dude, I got I got idol. But there's a few questions we can ask ourselves that, that, that will make it apparent, kind of a diagnosis of if we have it or not. If blank was taken from you, does it feel like your life would be over? Or do you feel a sense that you couldn't live without it? If blank, insert blank. Again, it could be anything. Career, children, peer approval, beauty, brains, success in Christian ministry, your dreams coming true, whatever it is. Insert blank. If that was taken from you, does it feel like your life would be over? If you would answer, yes, I don't know what I would do if I didn't get that or I didn't achieve that or didn't become that, then you got an idol. Then you got an issue. Then you got stuff that's competing for your love and your worship that's not Christ. We need to deal with that today. Tim Keller in, in that book, Counterfeit Gods, you guys gotta read that. Um, he also said this. In light of this, the way forward is to discern the idols of our hearts and of our culture. But that will not be enough to merely discern what they are. The only way 
to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the one true one, the living God who revealed himself both at Sinai and on the cross, who's the only Lord who, if you can find him, can truly fulfill you, and if you fail him, he can truly forgive you. See, it's not enough to just discern something that we might struggle with. We have to turn back to the one true living God. See, the thing is, is that Christ is our true and our priceless treasure, or he should be. We were created in his image to worship him as Lord, as master. And church, God is so much better and more valuable than anything you could amass in a million lifetimes. Oprah times a million has nothing on the precious value of Christ Jesus. He is able to satisfy us completely, bring us perfect joy, will unconditionally love you and accept you forever. There's no trying harder or gaining approval or gaining respect or gaining love. Or ga- it is finished. You are loved. Satisfaction is in him. Fulfillment is in him. Joy is in his presence. He also will never fail you. Stock market does. Houses go down. You lose your jobs. You lose your money. Lose your everything. Everything can fail. A bullet can get through that bulletproof grass, I bet you. (laughs) The boat can sink. Everything can fail. God will never fail. He'll never be destroyed. He can never be taken from us. And his promise is that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Jesus, just in a couple chapters in the book of Matthew, talks about a few parables. One of them is my favorites. It's Matthew 13, verse 44. Parable of the hidden treasure. One verse says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, or in his joy, some translations would put it, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field to go get God. Everything was less important than God was. Everything. And he was willing immediately to sell everything to get God. That's what the parable is speaking about. Apostle Paul also alludes to this. You know, Paul was pretty bad. Paul was the Jew's Jew. I mean, he was born from the right tribe. He was trained by the right rabbi. I mean, he did everything right. I mean, he was the most zealous of them all, and he had everything, and he had all the potential to be everything. And he says that in Philippians chapter 3. He describes what he's had or what he could have. But then in verse 8, he says this. Everything I just talked about and everything I could ever get is worthless compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ. That, that, that's the truth. That Christ is infinitely more valuable than anything else we could ever want, think, or imagine. So how we respond to this, right, 
really depends on where our hearts are at. Again, some, it may be obvious. See, the Holy Spirit's role in this world is to convict us, is to tell us of sin and unrighteousness. That's what he did during this sermon right now. The Holy Spirit convicted us where we've erred, where we've traded our affections. Because we're talking about idolatry here. Something taking the supreme place of God in our hearts. You can bet that if you're struggling or have replaced God with that, the Holy Spirit's speaking to you. Because it's almost more than sin. I mean, it is sin idolatry, obviously, but it's taking that place that God should only have. But maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's not so obvious, right? Maybe, maybe it's just not as obvious. And maybe we just maybe don't think so, regardless. Every one of us needs to take time to ask the hard, probing questions to God. Every one of us, including myself, in this room, we have to. We have to ask God, search my heart. Where am I storing up treasure? Is my vision clouded with the things of this world, Lord? What is taking my affection that should be yours and yours alone? And God... Is there anything that I'm making ultimate that is not you? We have got to ask those questions this morning. Worship can be a start. This morning, this, this, the second set of musical worship, as I get done, as I walk off, we're gonna sing some more songs. That can be a start. In the first song, maybe the first couple songs, I just want all of us in this room to reflect and listen and ask those questions and hear from God. But again, that's just the start. This week, maybe in your home group, in your personal devotional, we have to set aside time. Because if you don't, you know what happens? Week goes on, next Sunday happens, it's a new sermon, forgot everything that God spoke to us. It's kind of what happens. I, I, I know the gig, I know the deal. But if God reveals something, if he reveals something in our lives that's taking that ultimate place as master, that's not God, Guys, we need to surrender and we need to repent to that. Repentance is a turning from and a turning to. Turning from those things or that thing or that person and turning to God. It's always going to involve our heart, right? That's the root issue. It's not the stuff or the thing or the person. It's our own heart. It's always a heart issue. But sometimes it does take a tangible removal or stopping of that thing. You have to ask that question too. Because is it going to happen again if you don't take that out of your life? Is it going to become an idol? If you repent of it, which God will forgive you in the moment you do, amen, praise God. But, but do you need to remove it? Do you need to get rid of it? Do you need to take it away? But regardless, church, let's choose Christ as our treasure. We were created in his image to worship him as Lord and Savior. Don't pick Don't pick a cheap alternative. That cheap alternative is really cheap compared to the infinite value of Christ. Amen? Amen. God, we come before you and we just say this is hard. This is really hard not to make everything out 
that door something we want more than you. We're all in this together, God. We need your strength. We need your power. Holy Spirit, we need your transformative work. God, we want to lay down idols. We want to, we want to break those things down. We want to repent of those things this morning. We want to say sorry, Lord, that we put our affections in something other than you. God, we want to come back to our original design. Your original intent was for us to worship you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and have no other gods before you. And Holy Spirit, we ask for just clarity where we maybe cl- have clouded vision, where our hearts are divided, where things have subtly creeped in. We ask, Lord, that you would show us, you would illuminate our hearts of what it is that's getting in the way. And Holy Spirit, we want to set you back on the throne of our lives. We want you to be supreme and ultimate. God, you are worthy of it. That is your place and yours alone. So would you redeem us this morning, restore us, fix us, heal us? And God, specifically for those of us that are insecure or have identity issues or acceptance issues or we need to gain approval or gain respect from other people, would you set us right, Lord? We want to be still and know that you are God, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters, that we're fully loved and fully accepted and fully approved of. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, that you're a good God, that you love us, that you forgive us, that you redeem us. And we declare in this room as we worship you now that you are the true treasure, that you are the ultimate and supreme person in our lives.